Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how? Cue the aroma. Marvellous. Cue the taste. Magnificent. Cue the cucumber. That's the refreshing secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin, 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William Grant & Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain. Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes... Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! If you look at an election map of the southeast region of America, of the U.S., it's a sea of, of Republican red, rural areas voting for the Republicans and for Trump. But in that sea of red, there's this very distinct curving crescent shape of blue, of people voting Democrats. And again, just, just by looking at the map that I show in the book, it kind of sparks something in your mind. You start wondering, well, why is that? Why is it that people in this quite narrow curve are voting Democrat rather than Republican? Everyone else around them is. And the answer turns out to lie beneath your feet. That it's the geology that's underlying that region that is important. You're listening to a Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Focus magazine. When we think about history, we usually focus on the human impact, our influential leaders, the great civilizations we've built and how we've harnessed the world's resources to power our lives. But what about the influence of our planet? How has Earth helped to create us? In his new book, astrobiologist Lewis Dartnell talks us through just that, how the Earth's ancient geography has influenced the development of human societies in ways we might not have noticed, and how it still affects our behaviour today. He's talking to BBC Focus editorial assistant Helen Glenny about a few fascinating case studies, like how geological forces drove our evolution in the East African Rift, and whether the UK's ancient geography influences our political beliefs. Here's Lewis explaining what his new book is all about. 
Lewis, your new book is called Origins, How the Earth Made Us. Can you give me a brief overview of what that book's about? Mm, so Origins is all about the all the many ways that different features of the planet we live on, features of planet Earth, have directed uh, the course of human evolution and influenced uh, us throughout our history through the kind of, the kind of um, growth and development of civilizations for, for thousands of years as well. So it looks at different fundamental features like plate tectonics or the atmospheric circulation patterns in, a, in, a, in the air and what effects they've had and how they've um, directed the course of, of, of our history and therefore, why is the world the way we find it today? Why is our everyday life this way rather than some other way if history played out differently? Okay, sounds fascinating. So how do you go about making those connections between the features of the earth and human history and human behavior? Where, where do you get that information from? Oh, so I'm a, I'm a scientist. My research field is in astrobiology, which is all about looking into the possibility of life on other planets. So so is the bacterial life on Mars and, and how might we find it? So I spend a lot of my um, day-to-day working life thinking about the Earth in comparison to other planets and what might be special about our Earth and, and how it works. And so I thought it was, it was a natural extension. I was, I was thinking along these lines for quite a while about how has Earth um, been habitable for life in the most fundamental sense, but then how might features of our planet have been critical through much more recent history, through through the human story, if you like. And so I wanted for this um, new book to, to kind of just draw those lines, to bridge that gap between science and history and see how they kind of inform each other. So throughout Origins, I, I try to explain a bit of the science and a bit of the history that that's affected and weave those two kind of back and forth uh, through the chapters of the book. It's almost like two strands of a story or two strands of the narrative. Now, one of the first examples that you talk about is the emergence of early humans from the East African Rift. Now, I think we've all heard this story, but I'd never really thought about exactly why humans developed there in the first place. So I thought that's an interesting place to start. Can you tell me a bit about that particular example? Yeah, so I, I I actually grew up in East Africa myself. I was um, at school in Nairobi, and on our kind of weekends, we would drive off into into Nairobi Safari Park and kind of go see all the wild animals and, and the savanna environment that's there. So my own childhood, in a way, kind of echoes humanity's childhood. I, I grew up where us as a species had our had our birthplace, had our, our cradle, and as you say, I think it's quite common knowledge that all of humanity around the world today comes from Africa. We are all African migrants about 60,000, 65,000 years ago, migrated out of Africa around the world. But I think there's a a deeper question underlying that is, well, why did we evolve in East Africa? What was special or quirky about that particular part of the planet over the last 5 million years that created a species that was so versatile and adaptable and intelligent, uh, like humans, like like us Homo sapiens are, but also the other hominin species that we kind of grew up with in the in East African Rift. And when I started digging down into why that might be, it's one of those questions that just gets more and more interesting the kind of further uh, you dig down into it. And it was this kind of weird interplay, this 
this combination of effects from the geography, from the Rift Valley itself that we were evolving in, and how that was interacting with climate cycles on the planet. And the main feature here is that the Rift Valley has got the, these kind of liner mountains. The walls of the valley are very high, so they collect a lot of rainwater, whereas the floor of the Rift Valley is very hot and dry. And so any lakes that you get along that Rift Valley are very, very sensitive to that balance between precipitation and evaporation, but between the rainfall and it then evaporating off again. And so every time there's a little bit of a wobble in Earth's tilt, what we call the precession cycle and kind of Earth's place in the cosmos that slightly shifts just how much rain falls in the tropics and East Africa, these amplifier lakes, as they're known, um, respond very, very rapidly and significantly. So it's it, these these lakes, these these sources of water for our ancestors would have been very rapidly flicking in and out of existence. And it's thought that those lakes are that critical missing link between the really profound changes to our planet, like plate tectonics and climate cycles, and the very short timescale effects that, that influence a species on it on, on the course of its lifespan. So it's this weird combination of, of what the geography of East Africa was, that plate tectonic environment with these climate cycles to do with Earth's orbit and its, its tilt relative to the sun that created us as a species. We're kind of children of plate tectonics in that sense. Great. So can you tell me a bit about the specific conditions that arose in order for humans to kind of develop into, a, into what we are today? Yes, yeah, so we talked just now a bit about plate tectonics and how that created us as a species, how that drove our evolution to be an intelligent, tool-using, social ape that, that we are today. But actually, plate tectonics had a really important role to play a little bit later in our history, which is when the, we were starting to found these first civilizations. We're settling down to these uh, cities and, and growing crops, growing, growing plants in the fields around these cities. And when you look at a map of where a lot of ancient civilizations started, and you plot on that same map the boundaries of these tectonic plates, and there's a picture that I, I created for the book Origins that shows exactly this, there's a really surprising correlation between those early civilizations all huddling along these tectonic boundaries. So we know that plate boundaries are in some sense, dangerous places to be. That's where a lot of volcanoes and earthquakes are concentrated. But clearly, they're also providing some sort of benefit, um, some sort of advantage to the earliest cities and civilizations. And if you look at Mesopotamia, which is this land between the rivers, between the Tigris and Euphrates in the, in the, in the Middle East, um, that entire region of Mesopotamia is essentially running along the tectonic trough that's been created alongside the Zagros mountain range. So when the Arabian plate was pivoting away from Africa and slammed into Eurasia, when there was that plate tectonic collision going on that crumpled up this great big mountain range, a lot of the ground kind of sagged down under the weight of that mountain range to create this region of Mesopotamia, which has now collected these great rivers and a lot of sediment to give very fertile soil. So in that particular instance, there's a very clear reason why some of the earliest cities in our history of civilization were attracted 
without really realizing what was going on and the kind of science behind it, they were attracted to that particular tectonic region as being a really conducive place to settle down and, and go through the beginnings of agriculture. Uh-huh. Okay. So it created conditions where the, the rivers and the fertile lands were, uh, I guess, more beneficial or beneficial enough to be worth living there with the risks of earthquakes or volcanoes, those sorts of things that we associate with plate boundaries. Exactly. In that sense, that the advantages outweighed the risks. And then there's plenty of other examples around the world that the book explores as to why um, early cities were founded right by plate boundaries, but also a lot of trade routes, ancient trade routes went along plate boundaries as well. So there's that kind of human element being attracted to these particular features of our planet, of the world. Now, you talk about geography also influencing modern human behavior, uh, like voting behavior in the USA following the bed of an ancient sea, which seems really crazy. Can you explain <laughs> that example? Yeah, so throughout the, the chapters of Origins, I, I try to cover the whole of human history, some from our very creation as a species and how plate tectonics was crucial in that process through um, thousands of years of the history of our cities and civilizations and empires rising and falling again and what were the causes behind that. But I wanted to look at as much at the modern world as well. You know, this isn't just ancient history. There are some really deep signals of features of planet Earth underlying something as, as, as kind of modern and current as the most recent elections. And one of the examples was the elections that voted in Trump in, in the United States. And if you look at an election map of the southeast region of America, of the US, it's a sea of, of Republican red. Most people in that area of the country are voting um, uh, Trump, the, the rural areas voting um, for the Republicans and for Trump. But in that sea of red, there's this very distinct curving crescent shape of blue, of people voting Democrats. And again, just, just by looking at the map that I show in the book, it kind of sparks something in your mind. You start wondering, well, why is that? Why is it that people in this quite narrow curve are voting Democrat rather than Republican, everyone else around them is? And the answer turns out to lie beneath your feet, that it's the geology that's underlying that region that is important. And in particular, if you look at geological map, that, that crescent of Democrat voting counties is a um, stratum of rock which dates back to the Cretaceous period um, of Earth's history, so about 60 to 70 uh, million years ago. And during that period, there's the much higher sea levels and this really fertile, thick sea mud was deposited, which got compacted down and is now being re-exposed in that part of the United States. And this is where the geology starts blending into the history, because in US history, in the kind of 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, when the farmers are trying to grow cash crops in that part of, of America, um, cotton grew very, very well in those rich, dark, fertile soils coming from that ancient Cretaceous seabed. And at that period in history, growing cotton and harvesting it meant you need kind of nimble fingers. You can't harvest cotton the way you would harvest wheat or rice. It's very, very labor intensive. And that period in history, that meant slaves. So a lot of people were essentially kidnapped. They were taken against their will in Africa, taken across the Atlantic in ships, dumped onto these cotton fields of, of Southeast America um, to work the cotton fields in that Cretaceous region of the planet. 
And hundreds of years later, the descendants of those um, slaves still live in that region. They, they have the, the socioeconomic background that means they're more likely to be voting for Democrat rather than for Republican. So it's, it's quite a slightly complicated explanation, but there's this lovely sequence of steps where you go from something that you would think would be quite ephemeral or kind of nebulous, like what political party people are likely to vote for. And that goes straight down to the soil around them and the geology beneath their feet and the different ages of, of hundreds of years of history and how it's created that environment we live in today. I love that as an example of how the, the geology dictates the history, which dictates the politics we have today. And actually, if you look at the UK, there's there's another really nice example of politics revealing the kind of geological map beneath our feet. And if you look at the constituencies in the last election that voted for Labour, that maps almost perfectly against the parts of the, of the, of the country where there are carboniferous deposits. So strata of rock that are about 315 million years old. And again, in that, in that part of Origins in the book, I explain why is it that Labour constituencies might be more likely to be found around rocks that are 315 million years old. Huh. And can you explain that to us? Can you explain that to us here? What's the link? Yeah, so there's no secret behind it that um, the Carboniferous era in our planet was, was when a great deal of the coal was laid down. And I, I explained the book about what was weird about the Earth 315, years, 315 million years ago, that so much coal was created then rather than any other chapter of our planet's history. But that coal is, is now underground and it's what fueled the Industrial Revolution, and it's what we continue to use as a major energy source in electricity, power stations, even today. And so what's going on here is that the labor constituencies are overlying these carboniferous deposits because that's where the coal can be dug up today. And the Labour Party has had its roots in the unions, in particular coal mining unions. So that's why even still today, we see that, that link between a political party and a geological rock formation between these 315 million-year-old rock deposits underlying the United Kingdom. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Now, did you make any connections while you were writing the book that particularly surprised you? Yeah, so one of the sections, well, the chapter I enjoyed most when I was researching the book that kind of really jumped out at me as, as being surprising and giving that kind of wonderful aha moment when you see that link from the planet to our history was when I was talking about the age of exploration and the age of sail when um, Europeans and, and the Portuguese and Spanish first, but then also the French and the Dutch and the, and the English, the British were all leaving the kind of European peninsula. It was kind of like a backwater. Um, of the world in, in, in that period of, of history. And they started exploring out across the Atlantic and trying to find sea routes to India to get involved in the spice trade and then finding routes across the Pacific. And what these explorers were doing was putting together the kind of jigsaw puzzle of where are the wind bands across the earth, whereas the main patterns of winds like the trade winds or the westerlies, and how does that um, drive these currents in the ocean. So like the Gulf Stream, for example, though those two things are very deeply linked to each other. So if you want to sail from London all the way around the southern tip of Africa to India, say, to, to pick up some tea or some spice to bring back to the UK, you have to understand that fundamental circulation pattern in the atmosphere that drives the winds. 
And so again, I love that link from something as fundamental as how the atmosphere circulates high above our heads and how that drives these wind patterns and therefore how that dictated that process of exploration and trade and then these vast empires of the ocean that were built by the European powers and why places like Cape Town became so important in history or why California was so crucial to the Spanish and therefore why it's so built up today with places like San Francisco and, and Los Angeles. You know, kind of places you would go on holiday today have got these deep roots back through history. And a lot of that comes back down to fundamental features of our planet and where things can be found. So all that kind of stuff jumped out at me when I was researching that particular chapter of Origins of why the world is the shape it is we find it today and what it is that explains that, that origin. And so considering that these things influence where we choose to live and how we choose to vote, do you think it's important for us to be aware of these forces and how they influence our behaviour? Yeah, I, I, I absolutely think so. And so from my own point of view, I wrote a book about this because I thought it was interesting. I thought it was fascinating. And I wanted to tell other people about these stories that I'd found and, and things that explain our own everyday lives and the world we find. But if you start thinking about it a bit more seriously, how the earth has created us and driven our history, we're kind of turning that on its head nowadays with, with our modern industrialized civilization and all of the pollution we're giving off with our cars and our airplanes and, and our factories and power stations, that humanity has now become the kind of dominant force for changing our planet. And, and so a lot of scientists have called this uh, current era the Anthropocene, the kind of new age of humanity. And as people are well aware of already, we've got a lot of problems on our doorstep to do with climate change and global warming and ocean acidification. And these things which are problematic. We need to be able to find solutions to these so we can continue um, you know, living the way that we've, we've become, become accustomed to. And so I think just by appreciating that deep link behind how the earth has made us and how we're now affecting the earth in return, you just appreciate everything around you just a little bit more and kind of understand how it works behind the scenes and therefore why we need to take, take extra care over our planet. And have any of the things that you uncovered while you were researching the book changed your behaviours in any way? Yeah, I certainly think I've looked at the, the world around me in a, in a slightly different way. So um, my last book, The Knowledge, was, was all about how you could reboot civilization after an apocalypse. It, it was a thought experiment of how you could avoid another dark ages and recover society and civilization as quickly as possible after some kind of hypothetical doomsday event. Although, although it was a book that was about science and history and didn't actually have anything to do with the end of the world. But what I wanted to do with this new book, with Origins, was look not just at how the world was created by human ingenuity and, and, and human inventions and discoveries, but how the Earth itself has, has been you know, a lead character, has, has played like a significant role in our story. So I think between those two books, between the knowledge and Origins, I think I've given myself this kind of kind of bigger overview of, of how things work around you and what's the story behind them. And it's just, as I was saying before, just having that kind of in the back of your head to think about um, and how you look at the, the world around you. That was Lewis Dartnell talking about how the Earth has changed us. His new book, Origins, is available now. In the latest issue of BBC Focus magazine, we look into China's Chang'e 4 lunar mission and ask whether this is the start of a new space race. We are also examining a bizarre condition called aphantasia, 
in which sufferers can't imagine things with their mind's eye. You can also read about whether accents are dying out, and a man who's on a mission to image every fish in the sea using a CT scanner. As always, there's much, much more inside. And remember, if you like what you hear, then please rate, review and share with anybody you think might enjoy our podcast. You can also subscribe and leave us a review at your favourite podcast apps. Also, if there's anybody you'd like us to speak to or a topic you want us to cover, then let us know on Twitter at Science Focus. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.